He's kind of like the Joe Rogan of the hospitality industry right now. I will not miss a soccer game or a dance recital or any any of the above, any activity that my kids are doing. I will not miss it. I will miss a conference before I miss one single game. So those are kind of my my non-negotiables is that I I don't want my kids to feel like anything comes before them because it doesn't. You're listening to Slick Talk, the hospitality podcast, a podcast for those who are in and around the hospitality industry who love, live, and breathe what they do. You can join us for candid and unscripted conversations with hospitality experts and founders as we go deeper into their personal stories while they're sharing their triumphs and trials that got them to where they are today. I'm your host, Will Slickers, and you're listening to an episode of Slick Talk, the hospitality podcast. Now, let's begin. All right, Nathan, another question for you on a minute with minute. And my question is, I'm a remote manager or host. How easy is it to monitor when I'm out of state or not in the same destination as my property? Good question. We have tons of property managers who manage properties in a location other than where they're located or maybe in multiple locations at once. So we actually created a new area of our dashboard called home groups where you can group particular rentals by either geography or some other factor. Most people do it by geography. So if you happen to manage properties in New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, you can create groups for those properties and assign them to the employees that work in those areas where you can still see everything remotely, but your team only sees the properties that pertain to them. So that's one really good way to manage things from afar while keeping them somewhat separated. I love it. You heard it here first, another Minute with Minute, and now back to the episode. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have the one and only Avery Carl on the show. And I've been, I think I just posted, so after anyone hears this episode, I just posted on LinkedIn that I did 421 episodes in the last five years between my two shows. So crazy that we haven't gotten you on earlier, Avery. I can't believe that this has just taken one, probably me so long, but two that, you know, we've just started crossing paths more through conferences and all this other stuff. So I'm super excited because your show was one of the first shows that I actually got introduced to when coming into short-term rentals and all this other stuff. So very excited to have you on the podcast today. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great. (laughs) Of course. Finally glad we got this, this opportunity to chat. And, you know, like I just said, you've done your own show. You've been on so many other shows. So I've gotten to know you through basically the content that you put out and the conversations you have, but I'm really excited to know you as in the story and kind of unpack maybe some more things that you may not discuss on your own podcast or other podcasts in the industry. So we'd love to know just Avery, for anyone who doesn't know who you are, where does it all begin for you? Where does this business and entrepreneurship begin? Oh my goodness. I mean, entrepreneurship I I didn't realize this until I'd almost gotten fired from three corporate jobs, but just growing up, I did not have role models that worked for other people. All my entire family owns their own businesses in, in some form or another and does not work for someone else. So when you think about it, I was not raised to really be good at that. I'm going to blame my parents for me being a bad employee. So entrepreneurship, even though I didn't realize it, 
when I was a kid is just something that I've always grown up around. Didn't realize that until, like I said, I almost got fired from my third corporate job. And in real estate, kind of by accident, I don't think anybody as a kid says, oh, I want to go grow up and be a real estate agent. or I want to grow up and be a real estate investor. Maybe my kids will say they want to be real estate investors. I don't know. Maybe they'll just say, well, it's our inheritance, so we'll have to. Um, <laughs> so it was an accident. I was, we were, I was kind of realizing that I did not like the corporate environment. I had gotten my master's degree, been working in what I thought was my dream job in the music industry in Nashville uh, as a marketing manager for a few years. And I was just kind of sitting there every day and I'm, I'm very, very productive in the mornings, but once lunch rolls around, it kind of like it's downhill from there. So I would yeah. finish all my work by like 10, 30, 11 in the morning. And then I'm just sitting there like, there's really nothing for me to do. There's nothing that I can do. And I'm just sitting here just waiting for this manager to bestow a $10,000 raise upon me that may or may not ever come. And, you know, the amount of effort that I put in didn't correlate, you know, to the results that I got out. The results were the same, really, no matter how much effort I did or didn't put in. And so the real estate thing kind of happened around the same time. So when my husband, Luke, and I were moving from New York City to Nashville, our real estate agent at the time was trying to get us, this is back when Nashville was affordable and didn't cost the same amount to buy a condo in New York. And <laughs> Our realtor was trying to get us to buy in East Nashville, which is like, you know, hipster town and was really appreciating really fast at the time. Little did we know 2021 was around the corner and we were like, no, no, we don't want to live in East Nashville. We're moving from Brooklyn to Tennessee. We want to move out in the country. We were tired of neighbors. We had two neighbors in, in Brooklyn. We were on the third floor. We had first floor Steve and second floor Steve. They were both named Steve. And they they weren't the friendliest and it, it just got annoying after a while you know to have so many neighbors anyway we wanted to buy out the country so we did and uh, we said well you know what maybe there's something to owning buying one of those houses like we have a little bit of money left and maybe if we buy one of those houses and we just rent it out and let the renters pay the mortgage in 20 25 years when we have kids and they need to go to college then we can just sell that house and we can pay for their college out of that and not out of our own personal income. I was a big Dave Ramsey head at the time. I thought it was a really stupid reason to, to buy real estate, but we did. Luckily, we got really lucky on that first house. It was a long-term rental and it cash flowed $1,000, right at 1000 over the mortgage every month, which was about what my take home from my job was after deductions and everything. So we we're like, man, this house is making the same amount of money as me while I'm sleeping and not having to, you know, go to this office every day and sit there and wait for my boss to ask me to water her orchids or whatever, which is a true story. She's asked me to put ice, put ice on the orchids, which maybe I'm a stupid millennial. I don't know. I don't, it's worked well for me. Anyway, long story short, that worked really well. We had a little bit of money left and we said, okay, now we're going to educate ourselves. We started listening to, to podcasts, reading books, read all the Kiyosaki books, you know, read everything that you need to learn really to get started in real estate investing. We didn't even know it was called real estate investing when we did our first one. We were just two stupid people <laughs> that bought something and it happened to work. So then we were like, all right, we want more of these things. How do we do this? How do we build this business? We've educated ourselves. We have a little bit of money left. What can we buy that's going to make us the most amount of money the fastest? And we landed on short-term rentals. We knew we did not want to do it in Nashville because city council is constantly fighting about it and changing things. And we just, we couldn't afford to buy something, spend all of our money on it and be told we can't do it in two years. So 
We just come back from being on vacation in the Smoky Mountains and we stayed in a cabin. Everybody else that was there was staying in cabins. We figured somebody owns these cabins. This was way before there was any kind of anything on the internet. Now, like you, you shake a stick and you hit three people that are trying to teach you how to do Airbnb. This was 2015. That didn't exist. There weren't people on the internet, no people on the internet. And so we just kind of had to figure out how to do it ourselves. And really it, it happened because the managers at the time in that, in that market, their standard was 40% of your gross. And we were like, wait a minute, we can't afford to give you 40%. We need that 40% to buy another one. So we just kind of figured it out as we went and scaled from there. The one became five over the course of about a year, over the five and a half years now, we've got 250 doors. Eight of them are short terms. The rest are other types of real estate, long-term, single family, and multi. So that's how we got, got there. There's so much to unpack. <laughs> and before we go all the way back to the beginning, I'm curious, the 250 doors, that's owned property? Yeah. You own 250 properties. Yes. Doors. Property. So not, doors. not yeah. necessarily 250 separate properties. So probably about 75 of those doors are multifamily. So, you know, one okay. might be 25 units, but it's a mix of single family, long-term duplexes, and then apartment buildings. That's so mm -hmm. much. So we'll come back to that. We're going to put All a right. pin in this one, but I'm, I'm curious to know, you know, as you're in Brooklyn, what, what inspired maybe in your childhood or leading up into adulthood, the music career, the passion for going into music, thinking that was what you wanted to do rather than the real estate route that you've gone? <laughs> well, I have just always been an adventurer. Really, I would say my dad taking me to see Kiss when I was like 10 and Aerosmith also that same year and sitting there, you know, I'm from a really small town in Mississippi. So being literally fresh off the turnip truck and going to see Kiss, like third or fourth row, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the coolest thing I have ever seen in my life. So I started taking guitar lessons at the local little guitar shop called Backstage Music. And I was, I was, I was a really good athlete. I was really good at soccer. I played club. My club team was really good. We got a lot of attention. And because of that, I was able to get a soccer scholarship. And I knew at the time, this was before women's soccer was big at the time, but not like it is now. It was still kind of weird. Like my high school boyfriend's parents would be like, Oh, communist sport. <laughs> and you know, making those stupid jokes, but now it's not, it wasn't as mainstream. Anyway, I got a soccer scholarship to University of Texas. So I kind of, I thought, well, I don't want to stay in Mississippi for the rest of my life. I grew up in the town where Mississippi State University is. And they were like, oh yeah, you'll get a full ride to Mississippi State. And I'm like, I don't really want to stay here. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, all right, you know what? The soccer thing is going to get me to go somewhere cool. I, I got had quite a few offers and chose Austin because it was the best place for me to be able to start a band or to join a band. So <laughs> went to UT. I actually did, my team did win a big 12 championship while we were wow. there. And funnily enough, the, my soccer coach, his wife, she didn't remember me, but we made the connection later, came to the short-term shop to buy a house in, I think they bought in St. George Island, Florida recently. So anyway, I started, I joined a band there that had, was already established and started playing. I graduated in 2009 which was like the worst time in the world to graduate 
college because there were no jobs. So any prospect of me going and getting a real job at that point, it just didn't exist. And so I'm like, well, you know, we're doing this music thing. I'll bartend at the Cool Rock Bar and we'll do this for a little while until things start to look a little bit different. When they do, you know, I'll just go back to school or something and, you know, figure out how to reassimilate into regular society at that point. So I played guitar for a bunch of sloppy punk rock bands, played bass for a few like rockabilly bands, which is kind of cool and got to tour all over the place, US, Europe, Japan, and nothing anybody's ever heard of. But it was really, really fun. Got to see a lot of things, got to do a lot of things. And then in 2000, I guess, 12, Luke and I were like, eh, New York's getting kind of expensive and maybe we'll try something new. We moved to Nashville, went back to school. And I said, well, this is a great place to do the business side of music. There will probably be a lot of people like me who used to be musicians who now, you know, doing the corporate thing. And that's just kind of how that happened. (laughs) So the three corporate jobs that you got fired from were all in music and like social marketing management or what was the... So I was never actually fired. I was put on a performance (laughs) improvement plan. So there was one that was a sales job. It was a SaaS software as a service sales job that I was actually really good at. I took another job at an email marketing company. I was actually doing email marketing for Walmart, Starwood Hotels, and one other one. And that company is where I got put on the performance improvement plan. And then the music business one finally came up. So I was like waiting. I was just getting that marketing experience, waiting for one in the music business to come up. And it did. And then that one, I was also put on a performance improvement plan. But I was just like, you know what? This I'm just going to leave. Like we we had two short-term rentals, that which I was making no money. You cannot quit your job on two short-term rentals. So don't say I told you you could do that. I was making $35,000 a year. I can quit. I can walk away from that. You guys don't walk yeah. away from your like 75 or 100. So it just got to the point where it was like not worth doing anymore. <laughs> yeah, that definitely makes sense. After a two improvement plan write-ups, I would have been see ya. Yeah. Um, how briefly, I want to know, how did you and Luke meet? Like, where did you two cross paths? Was it early on or previous to college? No, no. He's a lot older than me. I wouldn't have <laughs> met him in college. So we met, there is a, if you are into the eighties rock at all, and I'm not talking about like Def Leppard, I mean like a little more underground. So we met at a, a metal club in Brooklyn called St. Vitus. We were there seeing a band called Faster Pussycat. They had like two almost hits in like 1988, between 88 and and 92 maybe. And so (laughs) I was just at that show with, with my girlfriend and it's, it was not a place or a bar that you would ever expect to go in and meet the person that you're going to marry. It was trashy (laughs) and gross. So we met at that. He was standing next to me and he was like, Hey, the next song's going to be poison Ivy. And I was like, how do you know that? And he was like, I saw it three days ago. And then that was, that was it. Well, that wasn't actually it. He didn't get my number. And then I ran into him again. So that was in Brooklyn. I ran into him Lower East Side three days later at another show. And he didn't remember me. He came up to me and hit on me again. And I was like, oh, you're the guy from Faster Pussycat the other day. And he goes, I am. And I said, yeah. And then he I, he acted like he remembered. Still didn't get my number. And then I went to uh, another show at the High Line. Probably, I think this was all in the same week, maybe two weeks, but I think all in the same week period. 
and ran into him there. And then he finally got my number. Then he was like, all right. <laughs> and uh, there's no, no chance I've ran into her three times. Yeah. I, I got a, yeah. You know, three times the charm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then we've been together ever since and so moved in like pretty quickly after that. And then we moved to Nashville about a year after that, been together ever since that was, uh, we just had our 10th anniversary. Congratulations. Yeah. That's, that's a big milestone. That's yeah. <laughs> not a lot of people can make it. I, I don't know. I've, I know a lot of people that can't make it past a year. So, you know, that's, that's pretty big. I love it. I love it. I, this is all personal stuff of like Avery Carl. I never really get to, to hear it. See, I know I remember at STR WealthCon, you're kind of talking about kiss and some of the music stuff. And I was like, Oh, I didn't know Avery was, you know, into this type of music. And so hearing your story and it all makes sense now. Oh, yeah. oh we're but, taking the kids to see kiss in November. And we have meet and greet. So it is entirely possible that my two-year-old son, when he's old, will be the last living person on earth to have seen Kiss. That's insane. Might be. This is their last is this their last show or are uh, they their farewell to tour, but they've done several farewell tours before. So okay. really. <laughs> hey, as long as they as long as they can keep them coming, they're gonna probably keep them going. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, it's super cool. Definitely want to see pictures and social media posts all about the oh, show yeah. and getting to meet them. That's a must, a must have. You mentioned a couple of things though, and this is going to get back into more of the real estate okay. side. And I, and I already gave you a heads up on this question. I normally don't. So all of our listeners just know I did give Avery a little, little sneak peek. So, you know, with the amount of podcasts that you've done, episodes you've hosted on your show, you've been guests on multiple shows within our industry and out. What is the one thing that you've wanted to talk about that you've never gotten to talk about? And you kind of referenced it earlier, but I think this will be really helpful for a lot of our audience because I've been doing this show for almost a little over five years. So our audience has been around for a while. They've heard a lot of people and names come through. Very few that have stuck or very few that have not you know, stayed within the industry that either went out of business or, you know, whatever it might have been. But I would love to know from your perspective, what's one thing or topic that you'd love to talk about that you haven't? And let's jump into it. Not necessarily like love to talk about, but thing that I think does not get talked about enough is vetting who you're taking advice from on the internet, because everybody can put yellow subtitles on their Instagram posts and it doesn't mean they know what they're talking about. So, you know, I've seen a few people take some bad advice, you know, maybe advice from, well, I mean, not necessarily bad advice, but advice that doesn't apply to what they're doing. Like maybe taking advice from an arbitrager in a Metro market when you're buying a short-term rental to own in a vacation market, things like that. But just, there's a lot of people out there that are trying to be influencers what i mean god knows why i don't know why there's no reason a lot of times other than they just you know want people to look at them and so you you have to be discerning in who you're you're taking advice from and making sure that it's applicable to what you're trying to do so i don't think that gets talked about enough 100 a lot of people listening though would consider both you and i influencers and i hate that word influencer itself but you know how do you determine kind of like what voices to listen to, especially this is one thing I would love to get your perspective on too. You know, recently we had a conversation kind of on the topic of, and I hate this title too, so just forgive me for the title of influencers and everything we're about to say, but you know, we had a, a debate more likely of, you know, short-term rental versus vacation rental managers. So the STR host versus 
the PM that's been in a vacation market for 10, 15, 20 years. And a lot of that conversation was targeted towards, you know, organizations like VRMA and a lot of hosts, new hosts, whether they have one, five, 10, 15 properties, don't know what the hell VRMA is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, vice versa. A lot of VRMA people don't know about some hosting type stuff or companies or names when they're pretty big. So anyways, mm-hmm. long story short, people that may be listening to that, you know, how do you kind of determine that, especially when a lot of people don't know what's really out there? So I'm going to quote someone else here. <laughs> so I was talking to Matt Faircloth, who is a big multifamily syndicator. And I asked him what, you know, what, what questions do you ask? Cause there's a zillion syndicators out there. There's a, so many people that are like, give me your money and we're going to go buy this, this big multifamily thing. And how do you know which ones are legit and which ones aren't? And he gave me a very simple answer. And I think it's, applicable across all asset classes and it's what's your track record. So, you know, if you're watching someone on Instagram or YouTube or whatever, and they own a couple properties, got in the game during COVID, they, I'm not saying that they don't necessarily know what they're doing because they may, but somebody who's been in the game, a, the better, better part of a decade and has owned pre-COVID might be someone that you want to put a little more stock in what they have to say because they have more experience, maybe more properties. You know, they've just seen more. They've been there and they've taken the the licks. So what's your track record is my, or what's their track record? You don't have to ask them personally, but you know, you can pretty easily figure it out from social media. Yeah. And to kind of maybe even comment towards uh, the yellow caption text, I, <laughs> I'm guilty. I, I have posts and reels out there that I we have, too. you know, caption <laughs> text and all that stuff. I've been forced so, to. I've been forced to. I didn't want to do it. <laughs> I agree. I, everyone tells me like you have to do ca- captions now. And I've been I've been, you know, being in the content game, I've been very bullish on long form. I know a lot of people are pushing towards short form, but I still think long form is going to win in the end of the day because I think people like the context because a lot of the short form stuff doesn't give you that it doesn't give you the details behind their arbitrage or who's talking about a certain thing when someone's trying to buy a single family in a vacation market they don't give you the context of all that stuff so when it comes to all this like content breakdown what would you like if you had i hate the top three advice things but what would be the three things you would say have people look into when they're when they're looking at content like yours or mine or anybody else in the, in the space in terms of the influencer the content itself let's do both okay let's do both well, I, you know, I want to see some longevity. I don't want somebody who like, I mean, everybody who has, it's almost like everybody who's just like put in a mortgage application is now trying to be an influencer. So I want to see some longevity. I want to see that you've been in, in the game for a while. I want to see, you know, you don't have to own a thousand doors, but I want to see some volume there because, you know, buying, having the experience of having bought three or four houses is not comparable to having the experience of having bought hundred because there's mm-hmm. a million things that can happen in a deal and you could have three, five, 10 smooth ones in a row. And then that 11th one is something that nobody's ever seen before. So I want to see a lot of volume because there's just a lot that can happen. A lot of experiences that can happen in those deals. And if you only bought, and there's nothing wrong with being new or only having bought three or four houses, but it's just not enough to really have seen a lot yet. Yeah. And what about the content? What what sticks out 
to you when you add that influencer piece where it comes to like volume, you know, longevity, all this stuff. Consistency for me is a big one. You know, when the content's shown, it, you know, a lot of it can look like yours. It can look like mine. It can look like so and so's. So I would, yeah. I want to see stuff that answers questions that I have. I don't want to see other elder millennials like dancing to music <laughs> it says like that feeling when you get a booking and then like dancing or whatever just i don't care i don't want to see that it adds no value to my day it you have taken five seconds of my day that i would like to have back i want to see something that i don't know like i mean i hate to say because everybody loves cody sanchez but like all of her posts say something they give me value i didn't oh you know what i didn't know that great i'm glad i took the time out of my day to read this even though you know it's only a five second reel with captions yeah. but yeah the i if some if an influencer is doing dances i'm like i'm not just <laughs> unfollow i want value <laughs> now cody sanchez is a great one she's one of my favorites inspired me to actually start we have a a vending machine business here in denver now because oh, nice. of all the content she's put out so really great person but yeah no there's a there's there's a lot of noise to shuffle through and this is more of an entrepreneurship question outside of like the guru how do you tell if they're legit or not legit conversation but you know with being an entrepreneur especially at your scale you're not only are you doing content but you are managing and owning and buying properties you're working with others helping them get their property as well how do you filter through the noise and stay just kind of in that heads down mode. Like how do you make sure that you're spending your time as the entrepreneur and business owner that you are appropriately into the maximized, you know, capacity that you could have? Well, I know everybody says this, but especially running a busy brokerage, I have to get up at four and get like two hours of just to-do list stuff done because the way brokerage works, you're kind of beholden to so many different timelines and other people's urgencies that it's really kind of impossible to time block or do anything like time blocking where you're like, okay, I'm not answering my phone for two hours because I'm going to work on X, Y, and Z. You can't do that when you're running a brokerage because the, the fires will pop up. The emergencies that different clients have happen when they happen and you don't get to say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm in my two hour time block this morning. Your $90,000 earnest money situation is going to have to wait. Like you have to jump up and handle that then. So getting up super early has really been a game changer for me because I can get all those to-do list things done before anybody is up and could possibly be having an emergency. So, but if you wait until like, oh, you know what? I'll start my to-do list after I get the kids to school. Well, everybody's up, things have started happening and you're, you're going to get pulled away. So for me, it's definitely the, the waking up early. All right, Slick Talkers. Now for another dynamic sponsored duo of the podcast. I would love to introduce you to Vintory and Safely. About Vintory, we've had Brooke Fotts on the podcast, who is a founder, multiple times, and him and his team know numbers. They know data and they know marketing. They know how to help property managers just like you scale and grow their business by adding more inventory, aka more homes, into your rental program that drive the bottom line. For all of you listeners that want to learn how to scale and grow your inventory, you can get a free digital copy of Brooke's book called From Zero to 500 Properties in Five Years. And for an added bonus, if you would do a demo of the Vintory platform, you'll get a $50 gift card to Amazon. Now that's a sick deal. And now to touch on our friends at safely.com. 
Safely.com helps property managers just like you and I protecting the homes that they manage from structural damage to content damage and of course bodily injury. This means plates, linens, cups, couches, tables, curtains, walls, and of course your guests themselves are protected. And this helps you by scaling your company in order to ensure that you are retaining owners and inventory in your program. If anything is broken or if anyone is hurt, you are able to make a claim through Safely and within three business days, you can get instantly paid out to replace any items and settle any claims that happen on site without having to deduct from your owner's payouts. That's why I call these guys the dynamic sponsor duo. And thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. Check out their offers in the show notes and back to the episode. Do you have any kind of methods around distractions when it comes to notifications on your phone or the last minute, you know, email coming through. Do you have any, I know a lot of people that check their email twice a day and that's it. Or, you know, there's certain other things that they kind of put in place, but if you can't time block, how do you keep yourself, you know, outside of that 4am time? So in terms of anything that is going to take me more than like 20 to 30 minutes to do, I will prioritize. So if it's like, you know, I need to write a piece of content for something or, if I need to organize, you know, do some some stuff with looking at a different way to maybe measure our agents' performances and things like that, I'll do that stuff early in the morning and I will prioritize doing that first so that when the the notifications do start coming through, like all the big stuff has been handled already. And then you kind of just like with with brokerage or you know being a mortgage like a loan officer or anything that is client facing you really, a lot of people are like, I want to be a real estate agent so I can be my own boss. You're not, you are answer to all of your clients at any given time. And yes, you could, you can go to the gym in the middle of the day if you want, but it's still like you're on call all the time. So there's really not a way to, at least not that I've found that you can truly organize for that because, and it's not going to be, you know, a thousand emergencies every single day, but it is going to be like three at one time. They do not space themselves out equidistant <laughs> emergencies come in waves. So there's really not a way to organize that really well. You kind of just have to be able to, to roll with the punches as they come in. You definitely have to have like a, an adaptability factor because you you just are not, it, it, your time is not your own. You, you're beholden to everyone else's timelines. Would you say the characteristics of adaptability for you and your upbringing and career path and kind of journey just through everything, uh, would you say that has been something that has stuck with you for a long time? Or is that something you had to learn kind of as you got into this business? I think that the adaptability kind of comes along with having a sense of adventure. So, you know, I moved away from home super early, did all these things, traveled the world with a band. And by just, just by doing those kinds of things, you have to be adaptable. You actually find it fun to be adaptable, to, to go out and do, do things and, and adventure. So I think that's just a, a, something that I kind of deal with naturally. I mean, Luke might completely disagree because there are some things that I'm not adaptable about. But in terms of from a business standpoint, in any business, in any entrepreneurship, you really do have to have an ability to just roll with the punches to be successful for sure. Yeah. Especially at your scale, I can only imagine your phone notifications. Are you one of those people that has like a million email unread notifications, mm -hmm. a thousand texts and missed call ones or... Tell me no, because I'm going to get anxiety just looking at your phone. 275 emails, 
33 missed oh. calls and 13 text messages. Okay. All right. Yep. That's <laughs> definitely spiked, spiked my blood, <laughs> blood pressure already. Well, I don't know how, so how do you, how do you manage this as uh, not only a wife, but a mom and now a bit like all this stuff, like how do you manage all of your day-to-day stuff in the sense of mentally, all this stuff. I, I know we kind of talked about like notifications and stuff, but more mm-hmm. of just managing expectations, managing your, you know, wants and needs. Cause you know, I'm sure you have non-negotiables with, you know, taking the kids to school or doing certain things that you want to be a part of. And I've, I know you, I've heard you talk about it. So how do, how does that happen in the day-to-day with you? So because I start working so early in the morning, so I'll work from like four to six, the kids will wake up typically around six, get them ready, get them to school. And then I've got about 8.15 until two. So I try to get everything done, all recordings. I don't try, I try my best not to have any meetings that end past two because Mm -hmm. I want to give my kids that stay at home mom experience, even though I run a business. So for me, like, yes, I will step away after two if there's an emergency, but if it's not, I will, you know, write back and say like, oh yeah, let's, let's get on a call at eight in the morning and, and deal with this because there are non-negotiables. I will not miss a soccer game or a dance recital or any, any of the above, any activity that my kids are doing. I will not miss it. I will miss a conference before I miss one single game. So those are kind of my, my non-negotiables is that I've, I don't want my kids to feel like anything comes before them because it doesn't. So I try my best to be completely done with work by two. So they get this year, they're going to, to separate schools that are opposite directions. So there's no like, oh, I'll pick them up today or you pick them up tomorrow. Like we both have to go every day now. So, so we'll go, you know, try and do something fun after school, go to the beach, go to the pool, go to the jumpy place. My daughter calls it, which is the trampoline park. Or, you know, they're getting into a lot of activities now. So if my daughter really likes tennis, they do soccer, they're doing piano lessons. So they just have like a lot of activities that they like doing that I like taking them to. I mean, there's nothing more fun. I love being busy, picking them up from school. We got to go to soccer practice. All right, let's stop at the donut hole, you know, at 7.30 and eat dinner at the diner on the way home. I love doing that kind of stuff. So those things are, are the most important to me. And in terms of managing it, I just try to slam it all before, before two o'clock in the afternoon. Hey, don't <laughs> they say you give yourself a time limit? It'll take you up to that point to complete everything. So <laughs> if you give yourself ninety days, it's going to take yourself. It's going to take ninety days. Yep. <laughs> so if you give yourself till two, you're going to get you're going to get it done by two. Yeah. Uh, I really love that. And more of a personal question, mm-hmm. if you don't mind me asking, I'm curious. You mentioned you want to give your kids a stay home experience or stay home mom experience. You want to you know, never miss any of those things. Was there a part of your childhood that, you know, kind of happened in the sense of making you want to have that as like, I'm going to be home. Like I want my kids to make sure that I'm always there. I'm always president. Cause I know you're kind of talking about growing up in Mississippi. So I'm curious to, you know, what was that like for you? And is there a reason why for those non-negotiables? Yeah. Yeah. So my parents were at every single game, both of them. And for my sister and for my brother, I'm the oldest and my mom's a stay at home mom. And there's a lot of things about that, about being a stay-at-home mom that probably would not work for me. But the things that I think are positives about it is attention and building kids' confidence, kids that get paid attention to, you know, not always, but kids that feel like they get enough attention and stability from 
their parents tend to do a little bit better. They have less adversity to have to overcome. So I want to make sure that even before that, my kids' confidence is where it needs to be before anything else. Because if they're not confident, then they're not going to do well in school. If they're not confident, then they're not going to do X, Y, and Z thing that will you know help propel them to wherever they wherever it is they want to be. So their their confidence and security is very important to me. I feel like that's something that my parents did really well that I had a really good example to kind of learn from to do for my kids. I love that. That's super cool. So as a aspiring soon, well, not soon to be, sorry, I need to watch what I say. <laughs> as an aspiring, as an aspiring wannabe father in the future, not that that's anywhere near close, but you know, I think that's super important too. You know, I, I I'm the seventh child of seven. So having six siblings out of, you know, the seven of us ahead of me, that was definitely something like you said, the having my dad show up and having them be present was super important. So I love that. I love it a lot. And I'm sure that I don't know about you and what you think about this, but especially being in a client facing or a service based business, it's really hard to put boundaries in people. Like if you give them a little bit, they'll, they'll go they'll go for it. They'll try to take, you know, if you give them a minute, they'll try to take 10. If you give them 10, they'll try to take 30 an hour, whatever it might be. Giving that boundary, has that really been helpful? Just like in the sense of like, I don't do this. I, this is it. I'm not going to miss this event because even though there's a conference, I'm not, I'm not going. This is a good boundary. It's healthy or else would just life be chaotic? Does that kind of hopefully make sense? I'm, I'm kind of asking a question yeah. weirdly, but yeah. yeah. So, I mean, in terms of like conference scheduling and stuff, tip, like I know soccer games for the age group that my kids are in are on Friday nights. So if it's something that if someone asked me to do a conference and it's over a Friday in the fall, I know that that's probably not something I'm going to be able to do because I mean, cause I do coach the soccer team too. By the way. So it, it, that part is pretty easy because everything has to be scheduled so far in the future. So that's not typically too hard, but in terms of like boundaries and people, I think it's really more of an understanding what, what it is that someone needs out of a conversation. So for example, someone who is upset about something or is complaining, a lot of times they, it's, they're not really even looking for you to fix the problem. They just want to be heard. And they just want you to know, they want somebody to know, and, and they want to feel heard, they want to feel validated. And that's, it's really just kind of understanding what somebody is looking for. Maybe somebody, maybe it's not a complaint, maybe it's a, a confusion. They don't know this market or that market, or how do I do this? If you're, you can kind of understand, I was a communication major, by the way, in college. So if you can kind of understand what it is they're looking for from the communication or the 10 minute phone call that they need or something like that, then you can typically hit that in a, in a time efficient way to where they don't need to be on the phone. Like they don't feel like they need you for an hour and a half on the phone. Like, Oh, we knocked that out in 15 minutes. Great. Thanks so much for your help. So I think it's something you kind of learn over time dealing with people. It's a lot, honestly, being a real estate agent is a lot like being a bartender. And I bartended for seven years waiting on that market to turn around. And it's, you know, you're providing a service for a lot of different people with a lot of different personality types and you learn how to deal with those different personality types. And there, there's really, there's about, I would say like 10 
archetypes of personalities that you deal with. And like when you're bartending, you've got the people who, you know, they just want you to give them their beer and walk away and you're not having a conversation and that's fine. And then there are others that they want to know exactly what kind of beer and where it came from and what, how it was made and everything they, every detail they possibly want to know about it. And then there's the ones that they know exactly what they want. They've been ordering the same thing for 20 years. They're in here every single day at this exact time. And they just want to talk to you. They just want to chill. They just want to shoot the breeze. So it's really the same thing when it comes to any client facing business, any sales business, any, anything where you're providing a service for people is just kind of understanding personalities and what they're looking for out of the communication with you. 100%. That was my biggest takeaway in the hotel world at front desk. You know, the front desk positions, there are some guests, just give me my key, check me in, get me up. I don't care. I don't want to talk. I'm just in and out. There are some that want to ask a little bit more about the hotel and the property and the destination. Da, 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 da. And then there's your regulars that were like, hey, they're just here to shoot the shit, have, have a good conversation. They know what's up. They come in every week, whatever it might be. And they're they're good to go. So I love that. I think, yeah, the communication part is really important. And, you know, one of the things I kind of wanted to talk to you about in this episode was I'm not a real estate investor. I'm not expertise. Like my expertise is not in real estate in, in itself. I'm a manager and manage properties and definitely know the hospitality side and the tech stack and the pricing, like all that kind of back end stuff. But when it comes to real estate, I'm kind of curious. I know this is going to depend based on the market and all the other stuff that's going on in the world. But what maybe are like the top three to five real estate investing fears that you've seen people have when it comes into purchasing a home for short-term rentals or even just kind of going in this real estate route? Hmm. The biggest one is going to be analysis paralysis. People are also scared of seasonality. They want to see the highest occupancy rate, even though that doesn't necessarily translate into the most money. Mm -hmm. What else? People are scared of guests <laughs> and, and what they're going to do to their house, which rightfully so. I mean, there's plenty of yeah. horror stories out there on the internet, but nobody's writing stories about all the easy ones because there's no story there. So th I think those would be the top three. What's obviously we know the answer, but what's the common answer for you? Do you kind of walk them through? Do you have a heart to heart and say, Hey, look, this isn't for everybody. Or do you say like, Hey, this is actually, you know, obviously your track record probably speaks for itself, but I'm just kind of curious on what, you know, the, the response usually is when you give them that, that, that detail. So it just, the, a lot of people when they're, they're scared of things, whether it's the numbers or the seasonality or the guests, they just want somebody to tell them with some level of assurance that it's going to be okay. And so, you know, maybe giving an example of why that's okay. Like, oh, you're scared of this, this condo building of, you don't, you're afraid of this unit and what it might do. Well, we actually sold this one two doors down and they did this last year. So, and yours is X, Y, and Z better. So, you know, you should be able to do right around that if you do things right. Or, you know, I'll tell them a story about a horror story I've had with a guest and exactly how that impacted my business and life overall. And really all it is, is like, yeah, you were anxious about it for a day or two and that was it. <laughs> so I think they just want to hear other people's experiences and to, to get that feeling of, okay, yeah, it's going to be okay. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. And I always kind of tell people we're not, 
curing cancer. So think like we're like, yeah, there's going to be some emergencies. Stuff will happen. But at the end of the day, like it's going to get solved. It's very easy. You know, just got to, it's more of a time thing. You can't just expect it to be solved overnight, which I think some owners have that expectation, at least from what we've seen. Mm -hmm. And some owners, I mean, my parents, sorry, mom and dad, if you're listening, (laughs) but Ooh, there's some times I'm like, guys, it's going to take some time just to figure this out. You know, hold up, wait a minute, put a little love in it and chill. So, but yeah, no, it's very, very much a, I would say a good, a good response to kind of give that, you know, peace of mind for yeah. them for sure. Well, what's the one thing I'm again, just very curious. What's one thing that no one really knows about Avery Carl when it comes to, cause you are a big name. Let's be honest. You're, you're big in the industry. You have your own show. It's a very popular show. What's one thing, though, that maybe your listeners or any of the followers here wouldn't know? I can't ride a bike. <laughs> you can't ride a bike. No. Even with training wheels. Well, no, I can sort of, but not not very comfortably. Or like I, I can't we cannot get on bikes and ride like two miles that way to go to the coffee shop because I, I can't do it. I probably, I won't like fall, but I will lose control or something. So I can't ride a bike. Noted. Noted. I love it. <laughs> well, the, the, the last question, which I did give you a heads up on as well is from a previous guest. And so this guest is Dale Smith and he is based out in the UK. He's got over 900 properties under Ooh. management. Yes. They're, they're growing fast. They just acquired a host and stay company out in UK. His question for you though, after he and I had a really good conversation was around, you know, what are you seeing being the biggest challenge in the industry in the next three to five years? And then he also kind of put in parentheses, what's keeping you up at night when it comes to the industry? What is keeping me up at night? Hmm. So I don't know that it would be keeping me up at night, but something in the industry that I think is going to be the the struggle is just that short-term rentals, we're, we're past the early adopter phase. We're past the gold rush. We are after the gold rush, to quote the Neil Young record. And we are, you know, now it's normalizing. The industry is normalizing just like any other asset class has. And I think that people are taking that normalization completely out of context and, and calling it a crash. And it's like, no, now it's no different than going and buying a multifamily, you know, an apartment building. The great deals are not just laying around out there on the MLS. They were in 2015, but that was early adopter phase. We are not there anymore. This is an established asset class. So it's when you go buy an apartment building, the deals are not just the great deals are not just laying around waiting for you to offer on them. But what you're looking for is the opportunity in a deal. So Yes, this apartment building is not making what it should, but all these units haven't been updated since the 70s. So I can start to phase these people out. And as I phase them out, I can redo these, like rehab these units and raise the rent to 300 bucks to get it to where it needs to be. So I'm not going to be making money like today on this apartment building, but I'm looking for the opportunity to get that cash on cash return or, or cap rate or whatever metric you're using to where I want it to be. It's kind of the sim- a similar thing with short-term rentals now. It's not just buying all the deals up that are laying around on the MLS and they're making money day one, but you're looking for the opportunity. So whether that's you know a rehab to add equity or adding things that don't necessarily add equity to the house, but they do add income to the property as a short-term rental. So 
I think I've, I see people selling properties that they shouldn't sell because things are normalizing and it kind of shook them up a little bit. And they think that the roller coasters are going to keep going down, but it's, it's not. We're just plateauing. We're getting where we're supposed to be. And I think that taking that out of context, I think a lot of people are making bad decisions about that. So you're telling me that viral tweet on Twitter that was talking about the markets being down 50% or more all over the country is false? Oh, Are you yeah. telling me that? Wow. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And I, I do think the normalization piece, I, I would love to, you know, from your perspective, being so heavily involved in the industry, not just from the management side, but from the real estate and the brokerage, you know, where do you so now that we're normalizing we're out of the early adopters phase is there anything in particular that maybe operators who i would say like let's say we're kind of believing the crash or maybe we're hesitant but kind of holding still what's one thing or two that people can do throughout moments like this because i'm sure we're going to have multiple reoccurrences especially with airbnb being so dominant as a term or phrase for us and being a publicly traded company and all this other stuff, what's one thing that you kind of use as like a North star to make sure like, Hey, we're, we're good. We don't need to do this. Like this is what you should do. What's that normal piece of advice you kind of give. So I, my best piece of advice would be don't make any decisions out of panic. I think a really good example of why not to do that would be the beginning of COVID when all travel shut down and people were mm -hmm. like, Oh my God, like we had, I probably $10 million, maybe more worth of contracts terminate because they were worried nobody was ever going to be able to travel again. The people that stayed in and thought, well, you know what, I'm, I'm going to, I'm under contract on this thing, or I've just closed on this thing. We're going to weather this storm and see what happens. Those people's properties are now worth over double what they were worth back then when everybody was freaking out. So, you know, just don't never make a move because you are panicked. Uh, and then in terms of buying properties, there's always going to be a reason not to buy a property. You're always going to be able to find one, even if the we're at the, like the lowest, the, the real estate market has ever been which we're not, obviously, that's just an example. There's always going to be a reason. So, you know, in 2020, people said, I'm not going to buy because I want to wait for the, I want to wait for the crash. I want to wait for all these prices to go down because of the pandemic. And so they did. And then that's not what happened. The prices doubled. And so then last year, year and a half ago, people said, well, okay, I'm going to wait for the prices to go down now because they can't keep going up. Well, the prices have gone down, but now the rates have gone up so much that the payment on the same property at a lower price is actually higher because of the interest rate than it was a year and a half ago. And so now they're stuck. So there, there's always going to be a reason. And real estate tends to trend upward. So I would would never say buy anything based on appreciation. Buy things based on cash flow and what you're able to to do now at the interest rate you're able to get it for and that hopefully appreciation will continue to build eventually interest rates probably will go down now we don't know if that's going to be next year or 10 years from now but eventually when they do you can refinance and then you'll have a little extra but i don't what i don't want to see people doing is buying properties that don't work now banking on the interest rates going down next year, which they probably kind of looking like they will. I'm not an economist, but it's kind of what it's looking like. Make sure they work now because you never know what's going to happen in the future. 
But anyway, you're always going to be able to convince yourself of a reason not to buy something. True. Very true. And final question for you, Avery, is without knowing who the next guest is and what their name is and their experience and all the above, what's one question you'd like to ask them? could be anything under the sun, business, serious, personal, all the above. Funny. Hmm. My, I should have been thinking about this the whole time, but you're asking <laughs> such good questions. What would I ask them? I would like to ask them if you could go back to 20 year old you, what advice would you give yourself knowing what you know now? Hmm. That's a good one. It's a really good one. I like that. Well, this has been a true pleasure with, again, how much of a legend you are in the space. I got exposed to you. You were one of my first. I think it was like Matt Landau's Unlocked Hotel. It was like what they called it. They used to call Fuel Hotel Marketing Podcast and then your show were the two or the three that I got exposed to first. So it's very much a, an honor and a pleasure to have met you and to have you on the show. And for all the listeners, obviously, I'm going to make sure everything of Avery's is included in the show notes. But if you had one place to send any listener that wanted to connect with you beyond the podcast, what would you send or where would you send them? Hit us up on Instagram. It's at the short term shop. Our link tree on Instagram has all the other links that you could possibly need to get where you want to go with us. That's what I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, thank you again, Avery, so much for being on the show. And like always, for all of our slick talkers listening, make sure you like and subscribe and make sure you tune in again next week. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to our show partners for making Slick Talk, the hospitality podcast, possible. We hope you enjoyed the show and we would love to connect with you outside of the podcast. So you can follow us on all of our social media channels for daily hospitality content or find us on slicktalkthepodcast.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'm your host, Will Slickers, and we will see you guys all again next week.